stone in love. Who's crying now? Keep on running. Still they ride. Escape. Lay it down. Mother, father. Does anyone know what these are? These are titles of songs from the same band. Have you heard of any of them? I assume most of you probably haven't heard of any of them. I'll give you one more title, see if you do any better with this one. Don't Stop Believing. Have you heard of that one? I'll bet most of you have. I bet you could belt out the lyrics to Don't Stop Believing right now if you wanted to. Just a small town girl living in a lonely world. It's like a midnight train going anywhere. All right, the goal was to get that stuck in your head for the rest of the day. All those other songs I listed are on the same album as Don't Stop Believing, the album Escape. Now, you might not know any other songs by the band Journey or even know who the band Journey is, but you probably know or at least heard of Don't Stop Believing. In fact, a couple months ago, I was watching a big-time high school football game. Sometimes they air those on ESPN. And I think I remember over the PA system, they were playing Don't Stop Believing. And the whole crowd was singing along, including the student section full of high school students. Now, the album Escape with Don't Stop Believing was released in 1981. All those kids in high school were born after the year 2000. And they knew every single word to Don't Stop Believing. Well, you might not know any other psalm or even any other part of the Bible for that matter, but you probably know Psalm 23. Now, we can fall into two different traps handling such a popular and familiar portion of Scripture like Psalm 23. One trap would be to focus only on the well-known part, only to know that part and ignore the rest. Well, there are so many other great psalms. Think of the lines like, Who do I have in heaven but you? Where will I go from your presence? Your steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is my rock and my refuge. Whom shall I fear? All those lines aren't in Psalm 23. The whole Bible, friends, is from God. We shouldn't ignore the rest. Knowing only Psalm 23 would be like knowing only Don't Stop Believing by Journey. There are so many other great songs by Journey. Even on the same album, Who's Crying Now? Open Arms. And you've got to throw in there separate ways and faithfully, of course. That's one trap we could fall into, just ignoring the rest of what's here for us. But you know another trap we can fall into, too? It's to ignore the greatest hit, so to speak, because we know it so well. We let our familiarity with it, be, let it become boring and dull. We become like the guy who says, you know, I only listen to deep tracks, not the hits. Because the hits are too mainstream. Well, sure, Don't Stop Believing is mainstream, probably overplayed, and there are plenty of other great Journey songs. But man, Don't Stop Believing is a great song, still. Sure, Psalm 23 it's mainstream. It's well-known, probably too well-known to the detriment of other parts of the Bible. But Psalm 23 is a great psalm. It's mainstream for a reason. 
Millions have memorized it. It's read at funerals, bedsides, and to those going through severe trials. Charles Spurgeon called Psalm 23 the pearl of the Psalms. And God has used this psalm in the lives of many people, including my grandfather's. My dad tells the story of how my grandfather, when he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer, feared death, like big time. He was scared. And in his last days, coming to Christ, he related to Psalm 23. I will fear no evil, for you are with me. That shift took place in him. Well, if you're here this morning, You've probably heard the tune of Psalm 23 before. But it's so good that we're going to listen to it together today. And you may have read it or heard it read many times before. But I wonder if you've ever really listened to it and stopped and drank it in and mulled it over and stayed a while. That's what we want to do today. Psalm 23. If you're not there yet, turn there in your Bible. If you're looking at the red Bible in the pew in front of you, you'll find Psalm 23 on page 458. 458. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's fitting that Psalm 23 comes right after Psalm 22. More than just like that's how numbers work, but Psalm 22 is often referred to as the Psalm of the Cross. It's there that we read the words that Jesus cries at the, at the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What's a better response to those lines than the opening line of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. I think if there's one dominant feeling of Psalm 23, it's assurance. Assurance. And assurance doesn't just happen. It's based on something. In this case, it's based on someone, the Lord. Put these together, and at the most basic level, we see that the main point of Psalm 23 is that God's care for us produces lasting assurance in us. God's care for us produces lasting assurance in us. I don't know, this is like the meat and potatoes of our relationship with the Lord. Man, I like meat and potatoes. And sometimes meat and potatoes are what we need. So Psalm 23 shows us so much of what God does for his people. Isn't it amazing that we can even have that conversation? What God does for people. Like we reflected last week from Psalm 8, 
We are insignificant in the grand scheme of things. But God has given us dignity, has made us in his image, has set his love on us and given us worth. And not only that, but we insignificant creatures are also sinful creatures. And still, God the Almighty cares for us. So looking at Psalm 23, we'll see two ways God cares for his people. Two things he is for his people. God is my shepherd and God is my friend. God is my shepherd and God is my friend. In the rest of our time together, we'll consider what, those, what it means for God to be those things for his people and what him being those things should produce in turn in us. So first, God is our shepherd. Looking at verses 1 to 4, what does it mean for God to be our shepherd? As beautiful and masterful as this entire psalm is, if there's any psalm that could rest on a single line, it's Psalm 23. And the line is the first one. The Lord is my shepherd. What makes this line stand out so much is that it places two radically different titles on the same plane, a juxtaposition. So on the one hand, we have the name of the Lord. We talked about this last week. I am who I am. It doesn't get any stronger than that title. God is who he is. There's no need of improvement. There's no need of anything. I am who I am. He is all in himself, self-sufficient, and he will never change. He is who he is. There's no fading. There's no leaving. So here, the Lord, I am who I am, the Almighty, is called shepherd. A very weak title. Now, every preacher ever has explained the historical significance of what it means to be a shepherd. So if you've heard this before, well, allow me to refresh your memory. What you should know about shepherding is shepherding was not this serene, peaceful kind of labor. Shepherding stunk, sometimes quite literally. It was some of the lowest work in the ancient Near East. And we don't know why exactly, but even the people of Egypt hated shepherds. Read that in Genesis 46. David, the one who wrote this psalm, experienced it himself. Families knew how bad shepherding was, that they would save it for the youngest in the family, and they would get stuck with doing it. And that's what David got stuck with. He was the youngest. So shepherds lived with their sheep 24 hours a day. They were everything for their sheep. Their guide, their physician, their protector. The shepherd's task was to provide constant care and protection to the world's neediest, most vulnerable, and if we're honest, the dumbest animals in the world. And here... David applies the title of shepherd to the Almighty God, the Lord. I am who I am. You already see the significance 
of having the one who is infinitely strong take up the task of giving constant care and protection. You already see the solace just in that line, the Lord is my shepherd. And it gets even sweeter. I mean, shepherd is just the sweetest title given to the Lord yet in the Psalms. It's more intimate than the distant titles of king or deliverer. It's more personal than the impersonal titles of rock and shield. But the opening line of this psalm is even sweet in its smallest parts. That little word is. The Lord is my shepherd. David doesn't say, the Lord is my shepherd if. Neither does David say, the Lord is my shepherd, but. Neither does David say, I hope the Lord is my shepherd. That one little small word, is. There's a certainty about it. The Lord is my shepherd. And that other small word in that first line, my. David doesn't say the Lord is the shepherd, true though it may be. David says the Lord is my shepherd. He knows me personally. He takes account of me. He cares for me as an individual. Oh, this opening line, even here, what does it mean for God to be our shepherd? We get that in one small line, but David goes into actual specifics in the rest of verses 2 to 4. So what does it mean for God to be our shepherd? What does he do for his sheep in his role as their shepherd? Well, friends, scan verses 2 to 4. Just glance over them with your eyes. Notice all the action words hooked up with God. You see, he makes... He leads, he restores, he leads again. He is with them, he comforts. And looking at all those different things, there's an implication in that. If God does all these things for his sheep, it must mean his sheep need him to do all these things. So up first, David says that God makes him lie down in green pastures. That must mean David needs to be made to lie down in green pastures. I've heard somebody said who has uh, five kids uh, that bedtime is an adventure every night. They go, bed? Bed? What's bed? I don't want to do that. He calls it um, a hostage negotiation, but only in reverse. So normally you're trying to get hostages out of a room, And here, you will do anything to keep your kids in the room. He says, stay in the room. I will give you anything you want. What do you want, a helicopter to Cuba? Just stay in there. We are restless. Not just as kids. We have grown-up ways to do that, too. And God knows how to make his sheep lie down and find rest. He doesn't do that as a tyrant. He does it as a shepherd. Philip Keller was a shepherd for nearly 10 years before he became a pastor, which, ironically, the word pastor comes from shepherd. That's a sermon for another time. But Philip Keller has a unique perspective on Psalm 23. He says that sheep don't lie down easily. Perhaps we can relate. 
in order for shepherds to get their sheep to lie down, he has to make sure his sheep aren't scared of anything, that there's no friction among the flock, that they aren't bothered by flies or ticks, and that they aren't hungry. He's got to take all care, care of all of that before they will lie down. Here's just a little bit of a glimpse of the Lord's care for his sheep and his wisdom and strength and how to apply that care so that his sheep find rest. That's just one thing God does for his sheep as a shepherd. We can keep going. God the shepherd leads his sheep besides still waters. Well, what, this, what must this imply? It must imply that his sheep need to be led to still waters, that they don't know where to find it, that they don't know where to find life. So again, here is the Lord's care and wisdom and thoughtfulness even. Because there are many waters. These aren't just any kind of waters. These are still waters. The sheep are scared easily. And these waters pose no threat. But what does God do for his sheep as a shepherd? We can keep going. God the shepherd restores souls. What must that mean? It must mean that we need our souls restored. Looking at how the Bible speaks of this action in other places, it shows, that, shows us that God doing this work deals both with him retrieving strays and reviving hearts. So like in Luke 15, God is the shepherd who leaves behind the 99 and goes after the one who strays, and when he finds it, rejoices. And so also in other places, God is the one who strengthens us in our inner being, is the one who revives the downcast soul. This is what our shepherd does. As shepherd, God cares for his sheep in every way. As one commentator put it, what good would it be to lie down in green pastures if you still had a dark soul? So here is God, restoring souls. Well, we keep going. God leads his sheep in paths of righteousness. What must this mean, friends? It must mean that we need to be led in paths of righteousness. You remember our call to worship, Isaiah 53? All we like sheep have gone astray, each one of us to his own way. Notice there's no qualifications in there. It doesn't say all we like sheep, you know, except for Bill Barbie, have gone astray. Sorry, Dad, you're not accepted from there. <laughs> Each one of us needs to be led in paths of righteousness. So God will do more than just protect his sheep. God will do more than just provide for his sheep. God will make his sheep new. And he's attached his reputation to his sheep. So he will finish the work that he started in them. His sheep will be holy as he is holy. God leads his sheep in paths of righteousness. What else does God, being shepherd, do for his sheep? God is with his sheep through the valley of the shadow of death. 
God is with them even there. You see the change in verse 4, the change in pronouns? I'm having you do all this English work here. David switches from he to you in verse 4. Derek Kidner, commentator, puts it like this. The shepherd here is no longer ahead to lead, but alongside to escort. The same one who leads us to green pastures is the same one who leads us through death's valley. Friends, we know that life is not all mountaintop experiences. Less poetically, to put it, life's not all rainbows, butterflies, and unicorns. There's also the valley. But there are balms in this valley. There are things to hold on to here. Even in the phrase, we walk through this valley. There is an end to it. What's more, this valley is but a shadow of death. And the shadow of something can do no harm. You think about the shadow of a dog cannot bite. The shadow of a sword cannot pierce. And what's more, for there to be a shadow, there must be light. So there are things to hold on to, even in death's valley. But you know the sweetest thing, the sweetest balm in death's valley is God's presence. God's presence. Captured in the four little words, you are with me. You are with me. God stands beside his sheep with his rod and his staff, one used for defense, the other for control, so that he's not letting us stray and he's not letting others attack. He will see his sheep through this valley. So what does God do as shepherd for his sheep? Looking at the road behind us, what we just went over, we see that when God is our shepherd, we will have rest. We will have nourishment. We will be restored when we're broken. We will be guided away from sin when that is the way we would go. We will have passage through death. We will have protection that comes from the Almighty. This is what God, being our shepherd, does for us. And that's a rich picture, isn't it? I was thinking you could dwell on just each one of those lines in two to four. There's a whole sermon on each one of those lines. But what's the headline, though, for what God's care for us as shepherd produces in us? What's the headline of all that? I think it's the second part of verse one. I shall not want. What does it mean to have God as our shepherd? It means that we shall not want. Left to themselves, sheep lack everything. They're the most helpless of animals. But in God's hands, the one who's sufficient for everything, these sheep lack nothing. It's simple logic, friends, like the rest of the Bible in the rest of the Bible, there are other places that uses simple, logical reasoning. For example, fear not. Why? 
for I have redeemed you. Simple, logical reasoning. Like in the statement, if God be for us, what naturally follows? Then who can stand against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. What follows after that? Then how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So here, it's simple reasoning. If the Lord is my shepherd, and he is, then I shall not want. Another way to put it, put it then I lack nothing. If you're anything like me, have touches of cynicism in you, you ask, is that really true? Is that really true? I shall not want. I lack nothing. I'm going to tell you, I read this and the Lord is my shepherd, and maybe I'm alone here, but I never feel like I lack nothing. I read here that the Lord being my shepherd is supposed to produce in me, and I got to tell you, so often I feel like I don't have rest, like I don't have much nourishment, like I'm still broken, barely breathing, like I keep falling into the same sins again and again. Like, I am still vulnerable. So it says, I lack nothing. I shall not want. My experience often is, I don't feel like that. So here's what I think we should put before ourselves from Psalm 23. For knowing that it is really true that we don't lack anything, that we shall not want. We have to look in the right place. That's why I never feel like it. Because I look in the wrong place for these things. Just look at this, verses 1 to 4 itself. What is the source of David's I statements? Whenever he says I, what is the source of that? So, for example, before he says, I shall not want, does he point to all the resources he has? Does he say, I have a family? I have a solid pension. I have overall good health. I lack nothing. I shall not want. Even more for David. Does he say, I have an entire kingdom at my disposal. I can afford the best doctors. I lack nothing. I shall not want. What about his other I statement? I shall fear no evil. What's the source of that? Does he look at himself and say, man, I have unlimited income. And I literally have an entire army standing beside me. I fear no evil. What's the source of his I statements? The source of David's absence of want, the source of David's absence of fear is not in any of his circumstances. It's not in any of his possessions. Neither is it in his abilities. The source is God himself. The way David proves that he is not in want, that he does not lack anything, is not by looking at his life. 
It's by looking at who his shepherd is. So friends, do you focus on your shepherd? What kind of shepherd is the Lord? I know we've, we've talked about it plenty already. You know, Jesus applies this term to himself, saying that he is the good shepherd. Why is Jesus the good shepherd? He says in John 10, 11, that he lays his life down for the sheep. Not because they are the good sheep. He lays his, down, he lays his life down for the sheep because he is the good shepherd. Jesus is the shepherd who's not distant, who's not out of touch, because he's the one shepherd who knows what it's like to be a sheep, because he was a sheep led to the slaughter. So Jesus brings his sheep through death because he went through death for them and came back. So if you want to have assurance that you don't lack anything, friend, do not look at your circumstances. Look at who your shepherd is. By doing this, we can know that in all we go through, our shepherd is with us and even knows by experience what we go through. By focusing on our shepherd, that his care is secure, we see more than he is with us in our trials, even though he is. If God is always our shepherd, we can even see that our shepherd uses our valleys for our good. Not only to bring us through them, but to strengthen us through them. Isn't that the wisdom of this shepherd? Friends, focus on your shepherd. And what shepherd is like this? What other shepherd is like this? Who else will see you through it all? Who else has gone through it himself, came back and said, take my hand and I'll bring you through it as well? Who else? I've never really stared death in the face. I haven't. The Lord's been kind to me in that. I know some of you here have. And I know some of you here today may be in the middle of death's valley and feel its shadow. Friend, hold on to your shepherd. In rising from the dead, Jesus, our shepherd, defeated death. Its sting is gone. Its power removed. So that we can say that death is but sleep. We can say that death is but a doorway to more, not to mortality, but to immortality. We can join with the Apostle Paul because of what Christ has done to say that death is not loss, but gain. Last word on this point. Last word. Who is your shepherd? Who is your shepherd? Friend, if you are here and you are not a Christian and do not trust in Christ, it's good that you're here. I want you to ask yourself, what other shepherd is like this? What other shepherd is like this? Who else has died for his flock, came back and says that you also can be a part of this? 
Who else can give provision that surpasses everything that we lack in this world and all the pains of this life? Friend, what will you take through death's valley? What will you take? You may call religion or Christianity a crutch that people use just to get through the hard times in life. Well, friend, doesn't everybody have a crutch? What will yours do for you? Will your money, your pleasures, or your accomplishments take you through this valley? No, friend, they will abandon you. Jesus is the shepherd who will not abandon you. He offers a cross, not a crutch. It's not just part of us that's broken. It's all of us that is broken, our entire selves. And believing in Jesus, the good shepherd, means his work becomes true of you. It means that just as he died, our old selves die. It means just as he rose again, so we also have new life in him. Friend, won't you come to the good shepherd? I don't know, Christians here today, outside of this place, probably inconsistent with the urgency that this is. I know I am. This is, this is serious. There is no other shepherd like this. And it is sweet. Verses 5 and 6. Yes, they're still there. <laughs> Verses 5 and 6 are like the opposite side of the record. I'm told that music did not always come on the little pieces of glass that we have in our pockets. So the music used to come on these strange things called records. <laughs> that they're made out of vinyl. And by some technological revolution, these records don't have music just on one side, but on both sides. Well, verses 5 and 6 are like the opposite side of the record. They're not played as much, but there's still plenty of good stuff on there. Well, the imagery changes in verses 5 and 6. We no longer see the Lord as shepherd, but as our host or our friend. So we ask the same thing that we did before. What does it mean for God to be our host or friend? Well, the picture we might think of right away is what we'll do later this week, Thanksgiving. Right? To be a good host at Thanksgiving. Now, everything's set in place. Like you eat in the one room you never eat in, eat in. You use the, the china that you never use all year. Everything's set in the right place. Even the silverware is put in the way it's supposed to go. All that it means to be a good host. Well, it gives us some clues into what go, what's going on here. But in the region and uh, time that David wrote, welcoming a guest was even more significant than it is today. See, back then... Uh, they didn't have cars. I don't know if you know that. <laughs> Today, we can travel to our in-law's house across town and get there in 30 minutes. It was not like that then. <laughs> Travel was hard, and they didn't live in Northeast Ohio. They lived in ancient Palestine, where it's hot. So here, when you welcomed a guest, you would be welcoming somebody who traveled a long distance, most likely and went through the scorching sun. So you'd be welcoming a person whose skin was likely cracked and whose throat was likely parched. 
So you would offer them oil to soothe their skin and wine to quench their thirst. So here, this is what God does for David. And David says he does this in abundance. God throws the best parties. But there are a couple unique things about God being David's friend or host. Notice, who's here at this feast? There's some strange guests that show up. It's David's enemies. This isn't the guy from work that David can't stand and he just shows up at his house for Thanksgiving. (laughs) If David is feasting in the presence of his enemies, it must mean that this is some kind of victory banquet. So think about what we just read in earlier, verses 1 to 4. We just talked about the valley of the shadow of death, just under a huge threat. And now here, God transforms that threat into triumph, a victory banquet. And this isn't any ordinary victory banquet. You know, God, being David's host and friend, has special significance for the time and place which David wrote. And it's not any ordinary feast. It's a victory feast, but it's still not any ordinary victory feast. How long does this feast go on? It, it's not ending. It just keeps going. If you host a guest this week at your house for Thanksgiving, you may take solace in the fact that they will leave your house in a couple of hours. <laughs> That's not the case at this banquet. One commentator says, to be God's guest is to be more than an acquaintance invited for a day. To be God's guest is to be invited to live with him. So what does it mean for God to be our friend and host? Psalm 23 offers a beautiful portrait. And even stand back in light of the fullness of scripture And that portrait takes on even finer details. Christ, our good shepherd, brings us, his sheep, to the table of the new covenant. A feast he's prepared for us. And in that feast, we celebrate the victory he has won over the enemies of sin and death. And this victory came by his death for us. Jesus said that greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for who? For his friends. So the victory banquet here, the Lord's table, will turn only into a sweeter banquet there. When we with Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our Shepherd, our friend, will feast with him in his kingdom forever. So playing the side of the record, verses 5 and 6, the tune sounds like this. That certain victory should assure us of our secure future. Certain victory should assure us of our secure future. There are some who teach that to be sure of your standing before God is impossible. And at worst, it's even presumptuous. But that's not the language of Psalm 23. 
Now, it would be the case that to be sure of our standing before God, to be sure of our future, is presumptuous if it was based on our own righteousness, if it was based on our ability to overcome the enemies of sin and death. Oh, yes, friends, it would be presumptuous. It would be impossible to be sure. But even in Psalm 23, the basis of David's assurance is not himself. It's the Lord, his shepherd, his friend. You see that in the verb tense. Again, I'm taking you to English class here. The verb tense in verse 6. Knowing the victory that the Lord gave him, David can say, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Again, it's not, surely goodness and mercy might follow me. It's not, I might dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So I will, I shall. There's a certain assurance here. And it's more than goodness and mercy being steady guides for David. They follow him. It's as if they pursue him. It's as if they're bringing up the rear. And they will follow him all the days of his life. Not just his best and brightest days, but the darkest and blackest days as well. So friends, if Psalm 8 taught us to be fluent in the language of praise, Psalm 23 teaches us to be fluent in the language of assurance. The language of trust. Friends, this language is all over the Bible. All over the Bible, there is the use of a future tense to represent an expectation based on what Christ has done. For example, hear Jesus in John 14. He says this, because I live, what? You will live also. See that expectation, future tense? Hear, hear Jesus again in the same chapter. He says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me. How about Peter in 1 Peter 5? A certain expectation of the future? He says this, and after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. These keep going. Here, Paul, looking down the future for those in Christ. What does he say at the end of Romans 8? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, or anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Hear Jesus again. John 3.16. Based on what he's done, a certain assurance of what will happen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. So drowning an ailing Christian, would you assure yourself of the promises of God? Yes, read the will statements in, con in context, sure. But there are so many 
expectations of the future based on what Christ has done already. So, brothers and sisters, let's be a congregation who does this together. So many times in the Bible, it tells us to encourage one another. Can we not do that pointing to the certain expected future that we have because of what Christ has done? Those are just a little sample of all the promises of God in Christ Jesus. Charles Spurgeon says this. He says, Oh, that our conversation were more often sweetened with the precious promises of God. After dinner, we often sit for a half an hour and pull our ministers to pieces, scandalize our neighbors. It would be far better if we said, Now, friend, quote a promise. And if the other replied, And you mentioned a promise too. Then let everyone present tell the story of the Lord's faithfulness to him. By such holy conversation, we would warm our hearts and gladden one another's spirits. Does that sound weird? Sure. Who cares? That's God's sweet design. Maybe it's a design for this week at Thanksgiving. Something to be thankful for? Be thankful for God's promise of a certain future because of what Christ has done. And pick one out. This is God's sweet design for us to have each other to remind ourselves something that Psalm 23 says. That goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. So friends, read these in your Bible. Take heart. Assuring ourselves of God's promises not the same as having rose-colored glasses. No, no, no. We see clearly that there are many troubles in this world. But we know that Christ, our shepherd, has overcome the world. And he is bringing a better one. And there, as the psalm says, we shall dwell forever. Let's pray. God, we say here, in light of Psalm 23, thank you. Thank you. We just scrape the surface of all that you do for us as our shepherd. And God, to be able to call you that, teach us the privilege of that. Show us the privilege of that forevermore. And God, we want to pray your promises back to you. You say you are with us, so God, be with us. Be with us in our valleys. Strengthen us through them. See us through them. And help us to assure ourselves of your love that is won for us at the cross of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen.